Welcome to Turning Little Stones, the podcast that takes a fresh look at the fascinating world of young children. As a parent, experienced childcare professional, and early years consultant, I get how much we dream good things for our children. We start out hopeful and confident, and yet somehow the daily reality can feel more like a grind than a gift. And so we easily miss out on the joys of these fleeting early years. Over time, I've come to realize that to give our children the best start in life, we first need to recognize what's going on inside them in secret. There is some great research out there, and my heart is to make some of this relatable for everyone. And so throughout these weekly podcasts, I hope that whoever you are, parent, family carer, childminder, practitioner, anyone who spends time with young children can take a moment each week to reinterpret what our children are doing and why. And by doing so, I have seen countless exasperated, bewildered, exhausted carers become re-energized and inspired as they find easy ways to connect with what their young children are naturally eager to do. A little like turning over a pebble in a rock pool to discover a hidden world tucked away. We too will look at our children with fresh eyes and delight in being part of their journey. So welcome back to Turning Little Stones and today um, I'm delighted actually to see Rachel, Rachel Duval again. Some of you may recognise her voice, she's recorded two previous podcasts with me. So that's her real backstory, so we're not going to do too much of an introduction. We'd ask you to go and listen again to episodes 14 and 15, tells you about who she is and what life looks like now. But today we're going to be looking at a really, really important, probably the most important subject. So there will be a tiny bit more theory or referencing more theory. So those of you who want to get the show notes and um, find your own resources based on the things that we reference, we would strongly advise you to do that. But we're going to be talking about Securely Attached. And I asked Rachel back, really, because she is so thoughtful and reflective. And her life story has given her insights into this subject that uh, I think we could all do with hearing. So, welcome. Thank you very much. Maybe the first thing we should do is uh, unpack what secure attachment means. Let's sort of put some shape on it, put some skin on the bones. So for me, secure attachment is um, the knowing because you know that someone is going to be there. So no matter what, wherever you are, whatever's happening in your life, it's they are going to be there. And you can return to them, you can move out from them, but you know because you know because you know that they're going to be there. And that's that internal knowing. So the they we're talking about? So initially, it's going to be a primary caregiver. So for a baby, that is when you start making those secure attachments. Um, so for example, when they are in womb, they hear the mum's heartbeat. So they start understanding that rhythm, that rhythm, that voice, 
yes, it might be muffled and it might be slightly different, but there's a there's a connection point. There's a there's an intuitive togetherness. So there is, um, you know, as mum moves, baby moves. You know, as there's loud music or sounds outside, baby moves. So there is that that connectivity, I suppose, um, that in tuneness that is naturally in tuned because the baby is within. Um, but once the baby is born, then actually we carry on developing those attachments to that primary caregiver, whether that is the mother or the father or actually maybe another primary caregiver for some children. Um, and I think that's that connectivity that is that secure attachment. And it is that ongoing development of that attachment or that connectivity, that attuneness between that adult, that primary caregiver and the baby, that actually starts ultimately what is a blueprint of their relationship building for their future and it sounds really scary when you put it like that but that's actually what you're developing you're putting those foundations those really really important foundations for the future of that child that will become the adult and the relationships and the 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 attachments they are able to then make as adults as well. So it's a really, really important um, thing to, to understand and maybe make those intentional changes as we, as we parent um, the children in our homes. So what I'm... I've got an image now of, of those beautiful pictures where you've got utter, utter delight, absorption just full-on love between a babe and the caregiver, mother or father or whoever. Yeah. But, you know, you've got... You know the pictures. I'll probably put one up on the, <laughs> on the show notes. Just to... It's, it's... You are the apple of my eye. Yeah. You are amazing. There are no other distractions. I think that's what it is. It's, it's that intentionality of that, you know, as a babe gets a little bit older, you often see parents doing your pokey out tongue and the baby pokes out their tongue. It's that mirroring. All of that is actually so, so important to building relationship. Um, and, and it just seems almost intuitive. It happens it just happens instantly with a newborn. Yeah. For most people, that, that is what you're, you're doing. But actually what you don't realise necessarily at the time and so I don't even think I did looking back um having having the experience of almost parenting diff two different styles um I think that that's been really interesting I am a very intuitive parent but I've now become an intentionally intuitive parent if you can be that <laughs> um yeah. and so because of the the involvement you've got in fostering and adoption. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So because I've got children who perhaps haven't had that beautiful blueprint from birth yes. um, and have different attachment patterns or, or styles, mm -hmm. so I've had to intentionally change what I do to try and replicate and secure their attachment to me as they've come and joined our family at a later stage. Whereas my birth son, that was how you've described that's exactly what I did from day one you know from the moment I knew he was I was carrying him um you know I would chat to him all of that sort of thing in in womb but then obviously surprise surprise I chatted to him afterwards as well <laughs> and it's that that he knows and now you know he's 23 this month um he knows 
because he knows I will be there no matter what's happened. You know, it does mean that if I get a, you know, when he was at university, if I had a call saying emergency, A&E, whatever, he knows I'll drop everything and I will be there. And that's what a secure attachment is. He can go out and explore life, but he knows that I'm his safety net. I'm the person that is always going to be there and, and catch him, really. And that's what secure attachment, a secure base, is is the sort of theory that it often gets called as well. Um, yeah, and it's thanks to people like uh, Bowlby, um, who's a bit old hat now, I guess, but he started the conversation and massively. So he worked uh, just after the World War II years, I guess. Yeah. And his work was taken on by a Mary Ainsworth. They developed something called yeah. Stranger Situation, Situation that's, that's it. it. Um, so, yeah, that was understanding how babies, how young babies responded to different situations when they were put in a strange situation. Yeah. And <clears throat> based on the children's behaviours they could begin to measure whether those children were securely attached or less securely attached. Let's go through some of the, the examples. Let's not use Mary's because you, you've got your own now. We were saying earlier that some children look and behave perfectly in a nursery setting or a childcare setting. I've seen that, you've seen that. Mm -hmm. And most people would, most adults would look at those children and go, oh my, aren't they, aren't they wonderful? Aren't they resilient? Aren't they, you know, all these fantastic words, they're good, it's, everything's good. But actually, if we know their backstory, we know that they've learned to behave in this way because of serious issues yeah. in, in their attachment. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's the key factor. Um, you know, if a child... Where, where we see typical development, you would expect a child to go and explore um, and feel safe. You know, it's, it is where that child from toddler, crawling, whatever, they, they will move away from you and look round, check you're still there. It's all of that. And that's where, um, I think it's around eight months, isn't it? Somewhere around there that that... that awareness of mum disappearing and you know you can hide behind a, a, a cloth or you know go behind a door and there's panic there's oh my gosh I've been left and it's that this is that's time what we to expect. play peekaboo and get them used to yeah. exactly I'm coming back I'm coming back and it's that it's that side of it because that builds up that confidence that you are going to come back and I think where we see that typically develop for children who have perhaps an inconsistent adult who isn't always there for them. So sometimes they'll approach and they'll get the response they expect and other times they might not. So then actually that child starts to go, oh, I don't know if that adult's going to be there for me. So actually I'm just going to have to rely on myself a little bit more. And so those are the types of children that we have seen then um, in our professional capacities and, and for me in my fostering and adoption style that they become quite independent um, and while that looks amazing and isn't it great that our children are going off and doing an etc but actually what that means is they are not securely attached because they actually are self-reliant they haven't experienced adults 
um, consistently being there for them. So that trust, that secure attachment has not been developed. And actually, they rely so heavily on themselves. But and I think that's that's what we're looking for. So actually, we want children to keep looking around and expecting the adult to be there and wanting the adult to be there for them for as long as possible, actually, because that's how we build that secure attachment, which, again, as I said earlier, leads to a securely attached adult who can then replicate those attachment styles to their children or friendships or spouses or partners, you know, all of that. And that's that's why that secure attachment is so important. It's about emotional um, intelligence really is built through secure attachment um, and and actually what we what we see and obviously that was part of the original um, the theory that that Bowlby looked at was children that had been removed from their families and ended up in orphanages and things like that and why there was a difference between the way they related and things Refugees like that so, and yeah, exactly. So that's so it's it's yes, it's a psychological theory, but it's very much played out in the practical within our homes and with our within our educational establishments, uh, whether that's a nursery or whether that's a school and things like that. So it's really important for our children to have attached to an early caregiver, those primary caregivers, so that actually then there's trust with the adults who support their learning in the other environments as well, because all of that is mapped from the original um, blueprint of their attachment style. And I love the fact that there are sort of two elements to this attachment. One is, you're the apple of my eye. I adore you. You are a delight to be with. I really relish every moment I can spend with you. So I've seen that with working parents who are collecting their child from nursery or working parents who has come home and you can just see utter delight I've Mm -hmm. I'm so thrilled to be with you those children would be securely attached and you can see it sort of sends off all this highly energetic excitable stuff inside them they they're just oozing excitement because of that so you've you've got the you're the apple of my eye but you've also got a different sort of secure attachment which is I go to you for comfort I go to you for safety I go to you to be under the shadow of your wing for a little bit you know just those and and so I suppose what you've been saying in terms of the children who show resilience, mm-hmm. maybe maybe those who are more securely attached are allowed to be a little bit naughty, a little allowed to be a little bit feisty, allowed to be a little bit woo all over the place, just because they've got that is that right? Am I reading too yeah, much into I think, that? No, I think that is right. I think it comes down to that unconditional love, actually, is what they have experienced. So no matter what I do, you're going to love me. Yeah. And that's that's that creation of that secure base, that secure attachment. So um, the secure base model, which um, is Gillian Schofield and Mary Bick, um, they, they indicate that... As those as those attachments are created, it's from that secure brace that you can go and explore the world. 
Um, and that's what we see in the nursery. So for a child that is secure, securely, you know, attached, their base, you as that, that primary caregiver, they can go and explore the world without feeling like the world is going to end. Because they know that at the end of the day, you're going to come back because you always do. You know, so it's it's that consistency of, OK, I'm going to drop you at nursery, but then I'll come back and pick you up. Or, you know, I'm going to go out to the to the kitchen, make a cup of tea and I'm coming back. You know, so it's it's on huge scale, but also on the minute scale for for a child to to build up that absolute assurance that you're coming back because that's what it's all about you know are you going to be there yes I am um, so from that perspective that secure base model says that a child that has developed those connections with you is assured of you being there means that I can now go and do what I'm supposed to do to explore what the mud in the garden's like, <laughs> you know, and I might be covered in mud and come back crawling to you, but you're still going to love me. You're still going to be there. And as then obviously they grow and develop further, go to school, go to university, go and, you know, explore the other side of the world. But actually you remain that secure, safe place for them to return to when it goes right when it goes wrong it doesn't matter and that's what that's about so that need for comfort when I've hurt myself children that perhaps haven't had that experience again won't let you look at their you know I've got one at home at the moment so if if they're hurt my fostered little person um so if if they come if they've hurt themselves and I'll say can I look nope nope because of that inconsistency I'm not sure what to do with this I don't know how to do this yet with you and you have to just build that slowly and then eventually hopefully they will let me have a peek um and and then we can adjust it as needed but that little person has found that didn't have a safe secure base model so that was not part of their their previous story before coming to us. And we have built that, whereas now, and, you know, we obviously, as, as being foster foster family, you know, we still have professionals involved. And some of the comments from social workers, for example, are, look at how he is looking at you. And That's it's that beautiful. adoration. So even though that child has not been with me since birth, we're building that connection point. We're building that attachment. And I am that person that he knows is safe. So he will return to me, you know, he'll go out and explore and come back. And that's that's what you're trying to develop. So even if it hasn't gone perfectly and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons, oh, you know. No, no child, no child has. <laughs> flawless but, upbringing. But the journey that that parent, you know, we can, we can harbour such guilt, can't we? You know, and I know, you know, if you've had postnatal depression, it can be really difficult to create that connection point, you know, and things like that. So... All is not lost. And I think, you know, we put a huge amount of pressure on ourselves to get it right in those early years. And we know why. And there's great research out there to explain why the early years are so important for building this. But if it hasn't gone perfectly well, 
we still have opportunities to rectify that and and put new things in place so and I think that's a really important um, message for all of us you know as parents we don't always get it right you know have I always been accessible no definitely not it's absolutely not my intention not to be but in those moments sometimes we get it wrong but actually, it's it's what we do to rectify that and how we, we we mend, you know. And I think the mending of relationships when it's broken for a little bit, you know, whatever that looks like, is so vitally important. And again, that adds to that secure attachment. So even when something's gone wrong, and you know, for children, if that's they've not done the right thing, or if adults, if we apologise, you know, all of that, that's about mending that relationship, which makes it more secure. You know, we can't be perfect as adults or as children. So, you know, we need to come away from that that idea of perfectionism and actually do the best job we can in the moment that we have. And often that's just about being present. It isn't about doing loads of other things or being here, there and everywhere and doing. It's just actually the children just want you to be present. And just a little practical thing that I saw as as manager of nurseries, you know, we saw the working parent that picked up after a you know long day at work but was so ready to see their child so ready you could just you knew the child was going to get the absolute best from their parent tired or not until bedtime we know that we could see it oozing love and then we also had those who were oh hang on a minute there's a phone or I just finished this text or there's something else going on there's a distraction again now and then that's the real world But just be mindful that that even glancing at your phone, even, you know, even try putting it away at mealtimes or, you know, key times when it's you and your child's time. Remove it, remove it as a distraction. Learn learn how to switch it off. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) We had, um, so one of the schools I worked at um, as a teacher, because we we recognised this, that, um, you know, the children are there waiting at the door and you as the adult allowing them to go as teacher sort of you know you'd see see parents arriving and their children would beam and actually there were some parents at at one stage who just didn't look up from their phone and it was almost and you could see the child sort of going look I've done me you know um and actually we banned phones from the the school playground for that reason so um in the morning and in the afternoon and we would remind the the adults (laughs) and go do you know what this five minutes that's all we're asking but that is a really really important five minutes because there's been that separation because of school times you know and and that input you know it's really just letting them know that they are important to you and that feeds into that secure attachment for sure love it thank you yes so what we're talking about is the responsiveness seemingly of adults it's the responsibility of the adult and you've mentioned this term co-regulation Can you just unpack it a little bit for us? Sure. So as children develop and go through life, they naturally experience situations which emotionally can be overwhelming. Um, So that could be positively or negatively. So, you know, if you've got a child who has been playing, you know, with a toy and it's broken, there is going to be an emotional reaction to that. Um, Obviously, at certain times, there is language involved in that. 
for some younger children, there isn't language yet attached to that. And that's where the adult can come in and support that child to understand the situation they are in. Understand and their emotions Absolutely. As well. Often labelling those yeah. emotions. Oh, I can see that you are upset because, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, this has happened. Um, exactly. So you're, you're, you're absolutely accepting the situation. Um, but that's what we call co-regulation. So you come in and support them to experience. So you're not taking them away from the experience generally, but you're walking that experience with them. So you're alongside and you're helping them reset and go, it's okay, the world hasn't ended, it's very upsetting, but, you know, and it may be that in that moment that the parent can fix said toy. Um, but it might not be, but it's helping them respond in an appropriate way um, and then be able to move beyond it as well so whatever that looks like so you are co-regulating and the idea behind that is that ultimately you do that time and time again so you are setting the pattern you are modeling how to respond to unexpected situations or overwhelming situations or excitable you know whatever that might be and then ultimately in the future the child and then young person and then adult are able to self-regulate so it's it's a movement from needing you alongside to help them co-regulate their emotions and understand them and label them and then they move into that phase where they then can self-regulate because they start recognizing how their body responds to things whether it's a true fight flight freeze moment or actually if their body is responding in a way that they can go oh actually if I engage my brain start thinking about my language processing the situation can I solve the problem so the unresponsive adult mm -hmm. or the less than helpful responsive adult like the snap out of it um get on with it yes. you know it doesn't Might matter really absolutely shut it down yeah. maybe afraid of the emotion themselves yeah. actually that they may be doing that in order to help the child become more independent but actually the converse is true actually the one who is providing appropriate physical support yeah. not overly no. not smothering no. them but actually the the what you've just described so beautifully is helping that child on their path to independence absolutely and i think i think it's it's interesting isn't it you know i know you're you're doing things on parenting styles but you know certainly from a teacher perspective of parents picking up children and things like that you see that where every decision is made for that child every journey is you know there isn't that opportunity for that child to practice and practice failing sometimes you know that's really important how we respond to things not going well so we as parents obviously want to wrap our children in in you know bubble wrap couldn't think of the word but you know we just want to protect them and look after them and you know, and actually that isn't always the best way through. It is better for them to experience some levels, you know, as I was doing a little bit of research for, for today, it's, it's we need some stress in our lives. It's actually healthy for us because it, it teaches us and our, to understand our bodies and our re emotive responses to things that can actually save our lives in ultimately, you know, we have to understand these things. 
But actually, if we always, you know, make decisions for our children or, you know, do everything for them, they don't have the opportunity to try to be independent. And it's really, really important. So it's no different from the emotional side to the physical side. We've got to co-regulate in all of those aspects. We are responsible for creating wonderful children then young people and then young adults and adults who can learn to fly you know and that I think is is you know you've done your job well as a parent is when they fly and that's that's what we all want but actually it's not done by accident that's really really important so that co-regulation is a vital sort of stepping stone really to that independence and that self-regulation and that ability to name our emotions feel our emotions and understand how that impacts our physical being as well as our emotional being as well how does this fit in with dan hughes work on pace yeah so, so he's so he obviously has taken um attachment theory and looked at it in in great depth and he's he's worked predominantly around um with with children and families who are at breaking point in terms of broken down adoptions and and, and placements and things like this um so he's come up with it's it's not really a it's not really a strategy but it's it's a beautifully explained way of working and and mending some of these things that have been broken for these children and i think one of the the most impactful um comments was so i i was really lucky to to be on a webinar with him and something he said really struck me in the sense of you know this place of safety that should be a place of safety of a home uh, a, a relationship um where you should be building these secure attachments um have has broken and created such a, a damaging scenario for a child or children um but the only way to fix and mend that is back within a family and that's so tough for the children involved because of the very thing that has caused the damage is the only thing that can rectify that um and i thought wow that's quite profound actually that 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 is the reality of that but his um his idea of pace so um i I will explain it. Um, I am naturally that way. I didn't realise that until I was given the language of pace uh, when I went through um, the adoption training. And I suddenly went, that's what I do. This is so cool. I didn't realise it was a thing, so to speak. Um, and, and I think that's because I'm uh, quite an intuitive parent. So I'm quite in tune with my kids. Um, but I am more intentionally so since knowing the language of PACE. So PACE stands for playfulness, acceptance, curiosity and empathy. So the playfulness, it doesn't mean you're a clown and you're messing around all the time, but it does mean that in some of those heightened moments, you bring in a bit of joy. You know, certainly it doesn't work quite as well with my daughter, but my my little man, he responds beautifully to a little bit of playfulness and even when we're at an impasse and he has additional needs with autism um so 
that is tricky. You know, relationship building can be tricky because it has to be on his terms in that way. But actually, he he wants that playfulness and that works and that I can conjole him round. And actually, just sense. a bit of laughter can diffuse situations Absolutely. like nothing else. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I always... Actually, I used to do this with Josh and I do it with my daughter and it drives her mad, but it, it does win, is where you do that, well, don't smile. Oh, I can see that smirk. And it's that naughty playfulness that actually... If someone tells you not to smile, you cannot not smile. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And you just, even as adults, you go, really? Oh, and you're right. And it winds her up, but it breaks the ice. And that's when you can bring in um, the other aspects. So that's your playfulness. So it isn't being a clown all the time, but it's bringing, hopefully, a little bit of something to change the atmosphere, to change the trajectory of where you might be going otherwise. So with the acceptance... It works basically on saying rather than shutting everything down, you are acknowledging where that child is at that moment. So, if so we're almost back to the broken toy, aren't we? I was just yeah. going to use that analogy again. So I can see that you're really upset because it's broken or your tower's fallen over. Oh, no, you know, it's, you know, just your blocks that you're building into a tower. Oh, no, it's broken, it's fallen down. You know, you can... It's, it's mapping the language and, and acknowledging and accepting where they're at. doesn't mean we're going to leave them there, but it's saying, I hear you, I see you, that's where you're at. That must be really tough. So that's where... So, and that works at any age. You know, if your teenage child has just come home and they've broken up, you know, a relationship, you go, I hear that. That's really painful. Inside, you might be skipping. <laughs> Don't let them know that right at that moment. But, you know, that's the reality of it. There are moments where we we, we pretend beautifully. <laughs> um, but it's, it's that connection point. I see that that's where you're at. But it might be that, you know, I had an incident of slamming doors yesterday in our household. And it's like, I get you're really frustrated. I understand that. But that's not okay. And that's so it's not saying it's acceptance isn't saying it's okay. Or the so behavior around it's, it is exactly. okay. That's it's, right. It's again it, for those listeners who want to go back to um, whichever episode it is, we talk about the power of words. This is exactly what we're saying. Try and name what yes. the emotion or the behavior is. That behavior in itself is not wrong. Yes. The context may be Absolutely. so it's it's legitimizing it um, and also owning that yeah. we feel angry or frustrated so and important. when we feel that so important. Um, because these are massive emotions yeah. that that overtake yeah children they haven't a clue they haven't got a name they don't know what it is no and I think it's really important to acknowledge your own emotions in situations and how you know we can be triggered by our children's responses to things Ooh, don't forget that yes. <laughs> um, but I remember my daughter a few couple of years after she she'd been with us and she, there was something going on I can't I can't remember I can remember we were in the kitchen and I just I looked at her and we use zones of regulation her school does so I'm very familiar with that it's it's a way of explaining emotions to do with colors and it just helps children that perhaps in those moments of I've lost my language I can't tell you what I'm feeling but I'm red or I'm yellow I'm bubbly and things and I literally said to her I am frustrated 
right now. So I am in the yellow zone. So I explained my, I labelled it and I said what zone it was. And for her, that was like this miracle moment of going, oh, you have emotions too. Yes, I do. And actually, we need to backtrack on this and we need to stop. And now we need to reset. And that's, so I think that's what that acceptance is. It's not saying I'm leaving you there, but it's acknowledging where they're at, what it is and why they're there. So that's really important. So that's the the A. Then you've got the curiosity. Um, And this is a beautiful tool, a beautiful, beautiful tool that can be used in so, so, so many different ways. Um, And really, it's when, you know, a child is showing an emotion, but or a behaviour because of that emotion or that experience. And you just come alongside them and say, I wonder if you're feeling frustrated because you keep trying to build that tower and every time it gets to number five, it falls over. You know, I wonder if we can, you know, and you come in. So you're not, you're not imposing. You're just helping them use that wonderful brain of theirs and creating the ability and, again, framing the language that could be that maybe this is what you're feeling. Um, You know, and I... It's, it's an amazing tool um, for situations that perhaps they just don't have the language for, that you can help navigate with them. And again, it's that co-regulating of that situation. I love that. And we will be, yeah, an upcoming podcast will be on a curiosity approach but so so yeah so you'll learn loads more but this is part of this sort of system and again it it stops you being the expert it just means I'm with you alongside this and I wonder but I need you to tell me or show me that that is right exactly absolutely so that's that one and then you've got empathy So, again, you know, the whole of PACE is really that empathetic model of coming alongside going, I might not be with you in that situation and feeling the same, but I'm sitting with you in it. Um, And there's a beautiful um, example, isn't it? You know, the difference between sympathy and and empathy and the sympathy you're, you know, if that person's in the well, um, in a in a really dark place you know the sympathy is going I see you oh I'm so sorry it's awful from the top (laughs) but the empathy is you've got in that well with them and you're just sitting there and going I I get that this is really tough isn't it and I think that's that it's you know there's no there's no judgment in empathy there's no shall we fix it it's just sitting alongside with and going I hear that this is really tough at the moment isn't it Wow, this is so, so rich. And I think there's so much here for parents, family carers, practitioners, teachers. You know, you will have little people in your classes and in your settings that um, have been through significant trauma. And it may be worth your while looking a little bit further into this. We're hoping you also might, you know, look into delving a little deeper. The first set will be getting to know you, sort of five audios on getting to know you, the child, differently, turning over the stone, the little stone, taking another look at what's going on underneath. But this is, this is amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. But, yeah, anything else you'd like to add? The secure base model. So, yeah, so this was something... So I think for me, as I was 
journeying, um, you know, and you have to do quite a lot of background reading and show that you've done background reading on attachment styles and attachment theory um, as you adopt. Um, and I'm a very practical person. I love theory. I do really enjoy it. But some of it's quite heavy. And I think also because of the, the topic, um, you know, I'm not just looking at the beautiful trajectory of attachment theory. I'm looking at the broken bits of attachment theory um, for for what sits in our family. You know, we're we're dealing with this every single day. You know, of what's secure and the things you think are secure, then something happens and you go, oh, we're really not secure, are we? Um, so you know, I've I'm I'm looking at that. So before really launching into that in in a capacity of it being in our home. Although I say that, obviously being adopted myself, I'm very acutely aware of when I feel attached and when I don't feel attached. So it's I, I guess I've, I've got that intuitive understanding as well. Um, but for me, I stumbled across um, the Secure Base Model um, and it's it's two books. There's one called The Secure Base Model and it's called Promoting Attachment and Resilience in Foster Care and Adoption. And although it's based for adoption and fostering it's written by um social workers um but actually what i learned as a teacher from it was massive and i wish i'd known it far far earlier in my teaching con- um side of things um and it's by Gillian schofield uh, schofield i think we say and mary beck and it's from Coram bath um and the other one of in that set is called Promoting Attachment and Resilience uh, using the Secure Base Model. And what I loved about it, you've got the theory in it, mm-hmm. but very practical ways of supporting. So what it might look like in a child who doesn't have this secure attachment mm-hmm. and how you, obviously in the, the sense of the book as the foster carer or adoptive parent, but actually as a teacher, what you could put in place and what that child needs from the adult around them to ensure that that, that deficit, that gap, that missing thing is, is put in place. And I think that's, that's really, really important. I think, um, yeah, that, that was really, really helpful to me. It's very accessible language. Lovely. Um, and that's really important. So I we'll think put when we're trying to do that. Yeah, to absolutely. That in, I think in the show notes. The yeah. other thing I learnt oh many, many years ago when I was a sinker, I went to, uh, to a conference about the mind and we had the main advisor to to the government at the time who was the sort of keynote speaker. And I it was it was quite early on with the neuro pathways and they showed how they are made and linked and all sorts of things. And the technology was just, you know, we're talking oh, a long time ago. So it was quite new and it was so exciting. And I remember hearing um, the phrase that basically when children reach puberty, it's like a reset button. So all of those neuropathways that maybe haven't been made successfully, all of those attachments, all of those bits and pieces that perhaps have not had the most successful start, there is a beautiful reset button that happens around puberty that actually we have another opportunity to reinstate the real secure attachments that we want to create with our teenagers and therefore then the model that we have then as they move on into adulthood as well and I think that's a really important part you know there may be different reasons you know my my son's dad 
walked out when he was three and a bit. And that had a devastating impact on my son. Um, you know, although I was there and I remained that secure base, there has been an impact for him. Um, and so as I, I heard that, that gave me hope. And I think we all need hope. You know, sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we didn't know. And what we don't know, we don't know. We can't, f we can't put things in place if we didn't know it. But there's always hope. There's always chance for change. And I think that's so vitally important. I actually couldn't agree more. And, and just to close, I would add that if things have gone wrong in the age birth to three or pre-birth to three, when the child is sort of understanding the world unconsciously, they have no filter, we have an opportunity between the ages of three and five or six to again revisit that and remedy those those situations and and I speak now to practitioners in in early years settings you know you are going to come across maybe not the severe trauma stuff just little stuff that that's gone on in their lives but you have an amazing opportunity to help correct some of those things just by yeah looking this empathetic world yeah Thank you so, so much, Rachel. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening, and we hope you're left with some food for thought and ideas to try. You might like to subscribe to our podcasts on your preferred platform and follow us on Instagram or Facebook. And why not head over to our website, www.turninglittlestones.co.uk, where you'll find show notes for each episode previous podcasts, blogs, and even details on how to delve a little deeper. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and let us know if there's an area that you would like us to cover. So finally, thank you for every like, share, comment, encouragement, and of course, for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>